Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of our womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Brethren Christ, this is Timothy S. Flanders, the meaning of Catholic. Laudato Jesus Christus. I'm joined today by Dr. E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Dr. E. Michael Jones is an author, lecturer, historian, and journalist. Jones' books, Libido Dominandi, Slaughter of Cities, Barren Metal, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, have sparked debate, led to social change, brought thousands of people to the Catholic faith. As the editor of the Culture Wars magazines, Jones has been on the cutting edge of demystifying and analyzing the programs of social engineering and sexual liberation and taking the wisdom of the Catholic tradition and applying it to today's ills. But his greatest achievement is his wife of 50 years, his five children, and 19 grandchildren. So, Dr. Jones, we're talking about your new book, Logos Rising, History of Ultimate Reality. Now, you, you've written how many books? I counted 20 on Fidelity Press. Yeah, well, uh, I just got, <laughs> it depends on whether you consider ebooks books. So I, I think we're between 20 and 50, depending on what you want to say. And some right. of them publishes paper and some of them don't, but somewhere around that. All right, excellent. So, and, but you, but Amazon recently came after you. Tell us about right. that. Right, yeah, uh, without warning, we simply got uh, uh, all the books were removed. My books were removed from Amazon. Now, this is I've been on there for 10 years now, uh, including the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, which had a number of five star reviews. The, the average was four point five or something like that. Uh, and suddenly it all just disappeared. So it's obvious that uh, in spite of what we're seeing on the news, like the COVID crisis, followed by the Black Lives Matter, Floyd crisis, that the internet battle over uh, free speech is still continuing. And it, as a matter of fact, it continues even better when it's out of the limelight because they just stab you in the back and your books are no longer available on Amazon and you don't have any recourse. Amazon is a, gov a, a, a corporation that has the power of government uh, governments cower when Amazon comes around, but it has no accountability whatsoever. So that's the bad news. The good news is that everything is still available at fidelitypress.org. And even better news is we're selling more books now than uh, we were selling on Amazon. So uh, Hegel would call it the cunning of reason. Uh, these people always overplay their hand. And as my friend said, God doesn't need Amazon to get the word out. Yeah, excellent. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. So um, would you say that Logos Rising is your magnum opus? Well, it, it's it's certainly the most it's, it's it's one time it's like the the most abstract book I've ever written because it's about metaphysics. It's about ultimate reality. It's about being as being. But it's also, in many ways, the most personal book I've written as well, because I end up being caught up in a story that began, uh, when did it begin? 800 BC or with uh, Thales. Uh, anyway, it's both of those things together. Excellent. So, yeah, we, we have the 
link to your books, Fidelity Press, as right. well as everyone needs to subscribe to Culture Wars, you're the editor of the magazine as well. Right, right. Uh, and so if you were to give somebody one of your books as an introduction to your work, what would you pick? Well, the Jewish revolutionary spirit is the history of anti-Logos. And the history of evil is always more interesting than the history of good. So that would be a good place to start because that is the crisis right now in our culture. Okay, the Jewish subversion of our culture. It's the crisis in the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church, because of a misunderstanding of Vatican II, cannot address that issue. Uh, but it's also the companion volume and probably the introduction to Logos Rising. I could not have written the Jewish revolutionary spirit without the term Logos. Could not have done it. Because Logos provided the bridge there between theology and history. So what is Logos? Logos is the order of the universe. Uh, when St. John wrote his gospel in Greek, he adopted that term and all the Greek philosophy that went along with it and incorporated that Greek philosophy into the Hebrew scriptures and came up with a totally new thing called Christianity. So it's crucial in that regard. But in terms of the, the, the anti-history, uh, this is Jesus Christ arrives on the earth. He is the Logos incarnate and the Jews call him the Messiah. And the Jews have to either accept him or reject him. And the Jews, the Jewish people, reject him. Now, when I say the Jews, do I mean every single Jew in Jerusalem? No, I don't mean that. Because there are obviously Jews who accepted him as the Messiah. <clears throat> it's just that we call these Jews Catholics, Christians. So when the Jews rejected Logos, they rejected the order of the universe. And when you reject the order of the universe, you become a revolutionary. And that's what the Jews did when they chose Barabbas over Jesus Christ. And that has been their identity ever, ever since. The Jewish revolutionary spirit describes that part of human history. Logos describes the other part of human history, because human history is a conflict between Logos and anti-Logos. So if you take these two books together, you've got an explanation of all of human history. Excellent. Yeah, I love what you say. Uh, page 192, you say, Christ paid honor to the logos of history by waiting until the logos of metaphysics was in place because without that quintessentially Greek vocabulary, no one could understand, much less explain who he was. And uh, as you're explaining the, um, the logos incarnate, you're, you're saying that it brings together sort of the Aristotelian self-subsistent being of logos where the Aristotelian tradition is, is coming up with these, these terms and it brings together that with the Platonic forms, which was sort of an ultimate efficient cause, the demiurge. Uh, I, I thought that was very striking because I have heard many thinkers say, talk about uh, an interplay between Aristotle and Plato in the history of Christian theology, whether that's later into the Christological controversies between Antioch and Alexandria, or rather later into the Franciscans versus the Dominicans. Um, do you see, how do you see that at work with the logos of history? Do you also see an interplay between Aristotle and Plato in the same way? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, when Aristotle died, that was the end of Greek philosophy, pretty much. Obviously, the academy continued for another thousand years. But I mean, in terms of Greek thinkers, uh, it, it, 
it ended with an impasse. And you could have the final cause or the efficient cause. Aristotle proposed a God who was the final cause. Plato proposed a God who was the efficient cause. But there was no way to link those things. That was the problem. You couldn't come up with... Uh, you couldn't come up with a relationship between them. And so in the absence of some solution there, they talked about the heavens. And the heavens were these kind of crystal spheres. And they became the medium of communication between God and man. And that's why astronomy was important, because that's how God talked to you. And the, 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 uh, the other way of looking at it was astrology. Astrology was primitive astronomy, but it was based on the idea that God communicated through the order of the universe, which he does. He does communicate through the order of the universe, but not in the way they thought he did. And so what happened here is that the Trinity resolved that issue because Jesus Christ was the son of God. And uh, it was origin. I forget. You have the book there, but it was one of these people. One of the early Christian fathers said Christ is the demiorgos. That suddenly resolved because God is both God the Father and God the Son. He's both transcendent and imminent because of that. And as a result, you have someone who has, has complete power and control over the universe, but also who can care for you. Well, that resolved that big dilemma because before that, you had either God who was transcendent, who was in control, but he didn't really care about you, probably didn't even know who you existed. And then you had a God who was a personal God, but he lacked the power of transcendence. Now you resolve that dilemma because the Trinity is what uh, uh, unites those two those two agencies. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't recognize that quote, but it doesn't definitely sounds like origin to me. Um, so how do you see the Greek Christological controversies? Because this this concept comes into uh, revelation through St. John, in Greek, and logos is a Greek word, and the Greek Christological controversies rage for some centuries with bloodshed and various right. controversies, whereas the Latins are basically Augustinian. Uh, they don't have as many Christological controversies for some time. They don't have really a lot of controversies for some time. Uh, how do you see that? Uh, how do you understand this in terms of this concept of logos, which seems to be a unifying concept between these two Greek philosophies, and yet it's uh, a great deal of division ensues after Constantine between right. all these different sects? Right, right. Uh, there, Newman says that uh, basically that the Western fathers, the Latin fathers were spared heresy because they couldn't speak Greek, because the whole debate was in Greek. It was it was that simple, you know. So, uh, you know, the Latin fathers didn't have a whole lot to do with it because basically it came down. The ultimate debate came down between uh, two Greek words that were had one letter of difference. Homoousion, which is the formula that came out of the Council of Nicaea in 325, and then homoousion. So homoousion means consubstantial or one in being, and homoousion means like. You know, he's like the father. Jesus Christ is like the father. Well, that seemed a lot more plausible uh, because it, it, it fit in with their understanding of, of reality. And the Trinity is transcends that ultimate uh, understanding of reality. 
so the base so the basic the two fundamental data that had to be uh, had to be processed were logos and hus or sun all of the trinity re evolved out of those two concepts and basically you had to formulate well what was the relationship between the father and the son now arius came along and arius was a kind of demagogue and he was very important in the greek speaking world and he basically took the term son very seriously and he said uh, basically well that the father precedes the son that is by definition that has to be the case and so if the father precedes the son there was a time when the son was not that which was not became the arian formula and it sort of made sense it does make sense it's just it's not true because it, it, if it's not true, if, it, if, he, if he, there was a time when he was not, that means that Jesus Christ was a creature. And if Jesus Christ is a creature, then the whole universe changes. It, a completely different universe. And you lose that sense of the Logos incarnate, of the Logos as part of the universe. And you end up with a kind of Unitarianism, which is precisely uh, where Newton picked up. And the Newtonian used it. Newton did not believe in the Trinity. And so the Newtonian universe is a universe without telos, without goal, uh, without incarnation, uh, where everything just functions like a machine uh, uh, that gets set in motion by the big watchmaker and then it departs. There's no meaning to history. History, and this had a huge effect because it, became, it be, created the rise of modern materialism which is basically that everything is just little balls called atoms bumping into each other. That's all it is. And then if you want to use the, 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 the uh, universe, well, that's big balls. And they, or they whirl around there and nothing changes. They just go around in circles, around and around and around. And the fundamental principles of the universe are love and strife, which Newton got from Empedocles and he called them gravity and inertia. And so you're back in the pagan world again because you abandoned the Trinity. And that's precisely the tragedy of the, of the Christian West, working itself out, first abandoning the Trinity. And what are we up to abandoning now? The fact that there are male and female. I mean, we, we've just gone down that road uh, to a dead end. Right. Yeah, I, nobody can deny that. Um, so what do you see? Why does Rome become the bearer of logos if they are latin they don't have the greek with logos the word greek um so you have the eastern orthodox on the one hand you also have the followers of muhammad as well which you also cover in your book uh why do why do those eastern movements not become the bearer of logos first of all catholicism died in africa with saint augustine he put the last books he wrote on the ship the ship set off for rome and the Donatists, the Arians, the Vandals swept through and they destroyed Catholicism. It was over at that point. Uh, at that point, the entire Roman Empire collapsed uh, in the West. It did not collapse in the East. But in the East, the problem was that heresy spread, even though the, the church remained intact. And so the only version you could get of, uh, of the Trinity was the heretical version in the East. And this was especially important for Persia because the Persians 
only new Nestorianism. And to this day, one of my Iranian friends did a, a movie about Jesus Christ. It's clear that he, he has a Nestorian understanding of Jesus Christ. And that is the Muslim understanding of Jesus Christ. So what happened in the West is that everything collapsed. It was, it was uh, first of all, the people north of the Alps were in a primitive state. They had just made contact with the Roman world. They didn't know how to maintain it. I mean, I, 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 I live this graphically because I lived on the eastern or, or barbarian bank of the Rhine for a couple of years in Germany uh, in a town called Race. And if you crossed the Rhine and went a little bit upstream, you came to a town called Xanten, which was a military camp for the Romans. And Xanten had uh, houses there had central heating and running water. And the people on the other side lived in huts. So there was a, a big uh, divide here. And basically what happened is that the church stepped in and took over the administration of the Roman Empire and they called it the Holy Roman Empire, which was not an empire in the way that the Roman Empire was. But it, 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 it kind of sanctified and resurrected the Roman Empire in a completely different form. And the man who understood that was Vico, the Italian philosopher from Naples, and I have a whole chapter on Vico in in the book. Yeah, so yeah, the yeah the, the chapter on Vico is great. I'd never even heard of Vico before that. Um, what about the Eastern Orthodox? They're dealing with these heresies. Don't they become Orthodox at some point? Got the Seventh Ecumenical Council, Photius. Um, do they work? Don't they work out their heresies? Why, why don't they? bear logos well they do uh but not to the full extent because they did not accept the filioque clause and uh some people say well that was just a pretext uh for basically political divisions and uh eastern nationalism uh of you know russian orthodox serbian all, all these different orthodox churches but i think it did have some bearing on this because the simple rule of history is if you don't understand the Trinity and operate according to it, you do not develop. And the classic instance of this was Islam. You know, Western Europe was a barbarous uh, continent at a time when when the fabled cities of the East, like Baghdad and Ctesiphon, they were just elaborate uh, advanced cities, especially the Persian cities. Uh, where they studied astronomy. The three wise men were, were Persian astronomers who saw the star and followed the star way ahead of what was happening in the West, but they could not develop, first of all, because of the Arabic conquest. So the Arabs are a, a primitive people of goat herders and camel jockeys, and they conquer Persia, and they impose this primitive religion uh, uh, the Islam or the Quran, they imposed it on the Persians who were weak because they were not Christian in any full sense. There were there were Nestorian settlements there, but that never took root there. And so it was easy to obliterate. And they did. They obliterated it. And famous Persian poets have called this a great tragedy for Dozis, one of them. But it got imposed on them. And as a result, you could not coordinate what you knew into a big picture, into a big coherent 
picture that would allow science to develop. And the main cause of that was the failure to understand secondary causality. Secondary causality is another way of talking about the Logos incarnate. What you're saying is that there is so much Logos in the universe that you can study the universe and derive Logos from the order of the universe. Now, you can only do that if you have some type of faith in the order of the universe. And that is precisely what is lacking in Islam. So in Islam, you have God performing everything. There's no secondary causality. Okay, that's bad enough. Uh, okay, because what you mean, science then becomes reading the mind of God. Well, mind reading is not an easy thing to do. And then on top of that, the mind of God really doesn't have any commitment to Logos. The mind of God, uh, Maimonides said that the God is like the caliph. Maimonides is a Jewish philosopher who was trying to understand Islam. And he said, the mind of Allah is like the caliph who is taking an afternoon ride and he gets to the gate of the palace and he doesn't know whether he's going to go right or left. Even he doesn't know. So how are you supposed to figure that out? Well, you can't figure it out. So your point here is total submission. You submit the will to Allah and, and you try and find his will. So if there's something burning, it's because Allah caused it to burn. And, and this destroys science. And suddenly, let's say the battle of Omdurman in the Sudan, the Mahdi rises up. This, I think he's the 12th Imam. He has a, uh, uh, an army of 30,000 people on camels and 20,000 people on horses, and they get mowed down by Kitchener's machine guns. And at this point, they realize we missed out. We, we, we missed the boat. They got the boat. They're on the boat, and we missed the boat. And they start trying to form technological institutes in Islamic countries in order to catch up so they have their weapons that will equal the weapons in the West. But the big problem is, is Logos. So you have a situation now when I go, when I show up in Iran, I meet women who are nuclear physicists who believe or, or in a kind of Quranic fundamentalism. You can't connect those two things. And so there's a problem here, and that's part of the problem that they have to solve. Yeah, you write, uh, quoting... Uh the biography of Lagrange, it says, you say the, the first scholasticism was contemporaneous with the Logelic Doctor and St. Bonaventure and the other medievals. It was dealt a mortal blow with Willem of Occam and its nominalism. Would you say that the nominalism and the voluntarism of Islam, later Willem of Occam, is that the root of all philosophical evil? Well, it comes close. <laughs> it comes close because... Because what you see with Occam is the importation of Islam into, into Europe, Islamic uh, spirituality, and a kind of dualism that was the antithesis of everything that Aquinas believed in. Aquinas fought what he called Averroism at the university. And it was uh, C.J. of Brabant who was saying basically, uh, you know, that something can be true of philosophy and the opposite can be true in theology and they can both be true. It's a doctrine of two truths. That was called Averroism because Averroism was confronted with the fact that the Quran said that the world was created and Aristotle said it was eternal and he didn't know how to resolve it. Aquinas resolved that issue. He wrote a small pamphlet called 
De Eternitate Mundi Contra Murmurantus, in which he said, even if the world is eternal, it has to come into being. Well, that's a brilliant, <laughs> I mean, cutting the Gordian knot. I mean, that was a brilliant statement because it, it, it separated time and causality. Because we always confuse time and causality. We're always slipping into the post hoc ergo propter hoc uh, uh, fallacy. So once he did that, he uh, allowed for secondary causality, and then it was too much. It was too much. Occam reverted to this Islamic notion that, that God was inscrutable, but you should be just pious by doing his will without knowing the mind of God. Aquinas thought this was completely repugnant, but it finally it took over all of the universities in Europe at this time. Occam died in the, in the Black Plague in the middle of the 14th century. I ate at the restaurant, which is now in the Franciscan monastery where he lived. Not much of an appetizing thought that he died of the Black Plague there, but he had taken over all of all of the not all of them. There was a split, uh, but most of the philosophy departments in Germany were uh, Occamite uh, dualist nominalist in their orientation. And the main uh, expression of this was Martin Luther, who said that reason was a whore and and but you still had to be uh, you were saved by faith alone. And that was ultimately that whole thing fell apart again into exactly what was the problem in, and still is the problem in the Islamic world. Now, can you talk about the renewal of Logos with the second scholasticism, with Salamanca, Bellarmine, that is the counter-revolution, the counter-reformation, that is, that, yes. how, how successful is that? And in this quote, you had mentioned that the, the French Revolution is what kills that. How successful was well, that? Well, the, the Counter-Reformation was one of the greatest comebacks in the history of the human race. Okay, generally just institutions go into decline and they never come back. This is the story of Vico, it's the story of countries, empires, and so on and so forth. But the Ch Catholic Church made a huge comeback at this time, at the time of the Reformation, reasserted the legitimacy of reason, and then once with that firm foundation, you could have people like the Jesuits simply go out and convert the entire world, which is pretty much what they did. Now, the tragedy there is that the Catholic Church, uh, which has become famous for shooting itself in the foot, uh, did the classic instance of shooting itself in the foot by suppressing the Jesuits at, at the behest of Freemasons like uh, the Duke de Choiseul and the Marquis de Pombal. And as a result, we had the French Revolution and probably one of the lowest points in terms of intellectual life in human history. A complete abandonment of all of the patrimony of the West. Uh, France, the West has still to recover from this blow. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna get into the modern period now with going through the Vatican councils because you do mention the revival of neo-scholasticism and you praise Leo XIII, Eterni Patris, uh, Gergelieu de Grange, you're critical of Malitan, um, but it seems that you point out some cracks in the what you call ahistorical Thomism following Aidan Nichols. But you also critique the Teilhardian optimism, the Hegelian optimism of, of many of the fathers or Parity at Vatican II. So are, are these two extremes or are they on a spectrum? Tell me again, what, what are the two extremes you're proposing? Well, the, the, what I saw was the ahistorical Thomism. When you when you talked about Kloitgen 
and uh, coming up to Vatican II, uh, you were quoting Nichols, and where he right. critiques the neo-scholasticism as being ahistorical. So I, I want you to explain what you mean by ahistorical, first of all, and is that one extreme on the one side, on the other side is the Teilhardian optimism right. of yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right, yes. You had ahistorical Thomism on the one side, and then you had Teilhard de Chardin and the star, this uh, evolutionism, Bergson, uh, to a certain extent, Hegel, who was the, core, the, the source of all of that material, on the weather. So on the one hand, you can have certainty, a metaphysical certainty, but it's, there's no, his, no accounting for history because all that metaphysical certainty is off in the realm of platonic forms, which never changes. So how do you account for history? Well, you can ignore it, which is pretty much what the Greeks did, but now you can't ignore it because Jesus Christ entered human history. And Christianity is a historical religion. Well, how do you combine those two things? Well, we don't know. I, I, you know what? I, I'm going to be, uh, you know, one thing I take pride in is my humility. And I'm going to say the latest <laughs> attempt is Logos rising because I'm trying to update Thomism and try to make it somewhat historical. Now, I made a stab at this with a recent, uh, there was a recent article in First Things by some Dominican, I forget his name, I apologize to the guy. But uh, he's talking about uh, how we have to follow the COVID rules because the state has authority in matters like this and the church should obey the state. Well, what do you mean by the state? Are, are you talking about some type of platonic form? Uh, or are you talking about the reality that we live in where the state is a pawn of moneyed interests? Oligarchs pull the strings and control the state. Well, that's what I'm saying by historical Thomism. Yes, there is a form. Yes, I agree with you. But we have to contextualize the state so that we know how to order, uh, act properly. The same thing is about the medicine. Well, yes, of course, I believe in medicine. But that, that, does that mean I have to follow Bill Gates? This is exactly what I'm talking about. It was like a classic instance of arguing from purely ahistorical platonic categories and coming to the wrong conclusion, which is basically the church should simply roll over and play dead and do whatever the state says about shutting down its own liturgical services. So would you say that the failure of neo-scholasticism was a failure to come to grips with the 19th century revolutions and the change in society, just sort of focusing on these abstract concepts and but not applying them to the world. This was uh, Yves Congar's critique in his controversial essay in 1930. When he came out with Nouvelle Theologie, his critique was that you're not bringing the theology to the day-to-day -day life and the history. And that yes. was, okay, so Vatican II is, would you see Vatican II as trying to come to grips with the history? Yes. At least, at least Absolutely. in theory. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And so you say, uh, page 635, the council ran aground because of an unfounded optimism based on an uncritical adoption of Hegelian and Bergsonian concepts of becoming, which had made their way into the council's documents via the impression which the writings of Père Tell Terhard had made into Nouvelle Théologie follow followers and professors like Ernan McMullen. So the Vatican II, what, so what do you see as the failure of realizing this historical vision? Do we need a third council? Okay, there was a flaw. 
I've already talked about the flaw of ahistorical Thomism that needed to be corrected. Anything that is bad can be corrected, or you can take the flaw and you can throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can use this flaw and you can exploit it as a way of discrediting the entire enterprise. That is precisely what Ernan McMullen did at Notre Dame. He was a sinister figure. He is, if there's one villain in this book, it is Ernan McMullen. The only person who comes close to Ernan McMullen is Theodore Hesburgh, uh, uh, because they, they were both involved in the same conspiracy, basically to overturn Thomism, not to, not to correct it, not to preserve what was good about it, not to preserve the metaphysical certainty that we all need, but to use this flaw as a way of throwing the whole thing out and then returning not to uh, a purified Thomism or, or something like that, but returning to the crude scientism of balls bumping into each other, back to materialism, the crudest type of materialism, which wasn't going to fly. Because McMullen was smart enough to know that he studied with er studied with Erwin Schrödinger in 1950. He knew about Heisenberg. There's a whole chapter on Heisenberg, and who explains, no, there aren't any balls anymore. It was the physicist who discovered that there are no atoms anymore because atom means something you can't cut, and you can split this thing and split it until finally it releases energy, and that's called the atomic bomb. So he knew all of that, and he deliberately pretended that he had some type of insight and this was superior and he he destroyed the very thing that he was supposed to save, that Notre Dame had come to save, that Maritain had left France for. I mean, he, he Maritain and Gilson talked about themselves as, you know, leaving Constantinople after the Turks had overrun it and taking it to Western Europe and restarting Logos. And they did. And it was strangled within its cradle within years. It's like the, the tragedy of Aquinas. Aquinas lasted about 70 years and he was strangled by William of Ockham. What do you want? Where, what do you want to date this from? Eterni Patris, 1879. By 1969, it was over. 90 years. About the same time that the first Thomism lasted. Uh, destroyed by wicked men who wanted money and power. Well, I guess that gives us hope if we've lasted only a short period and St. Thomas has been reborn again and again over the centuries. What about people like Maui Tan that you just mentioned? Because they're more of a moderate party. And obviously Paul VI followed after Maui Tan as sort of the architect of Vatican II. And obviously John Paul II and Ratzinger are more of a moderate party. What do you think about their achievements for sort of restarting a Thomistic or a scholasticism? You mean John Paul II restarting scholasticism? He he wasn't a scholastic. He was a personalist. He was a whatever. I, I forget what what do they call them? Lublin that that school at Lublin. Yeah, it wasn't personalism. Thomism. Yeah, it wasn't Thomism. So he's not going to do it. Uh, you have to have the basis. If you're a Catholic thinker, you have to have Thomism as the basis for what you're doing. You cannot get around it. It is impossible to be a Catholic in any serious way without being a Thomist. But, but that being said, you have to be aware of how Thomism has developed and the shortcomings. And you have to be able to take it to an, another level without, without destroying it. So Maritain, I mean, I wrote my doctoral dissertation based on a book by Jacques Maritain. So I'm, not, I'm no enemy of Jacques Maritain. 
It was the, uh, my doctoral dissertation was called The Angel and the Machine, and it was based on the uh, Descartes chapter in uh, his book, Three Reformers. It was brilliant, brilliant piece of analysis. His, 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 his uh, critique of Luther was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Now, what happened, I think, with Jacques Maritain is he became famous. We have no idea. You have no idea of the role that he played, of the position that he held in American thought at this time. It is impossible to imagine the respect with which the Harvard Philosophy Department held Etienne Gilson and asked him to come there and give that series of lectures at Harvard in the 1930s. Uh, the University of Chicago was in the 1930s had two Thomists. One was a Baptist and the other was a Jew. Neither one was Catholic, but they saw Thomism as the only alternative to the crude American pragmatism that had no depth whatsoever. And they were willing to implement that at the University of Chicago, uh, simply because of its relevance as a, a philosophical school. It didn't work. It didn't work. And then Maritain ended up at uh, Notre Dame, not in person, but as the Maritain Institute and through surrogates like Ralph McInerney, who I knew personally. And that is in many ways the end of the book. The end of the book is basically Ralph McInerney in the last ditch as Elijah taking his mantle and putting it over my shoulders. So I'm Alicia and he's Elijah. And that's it. That's it. That brings us up to date. And that's why it's the most personal book I've written as well. Yeah, I really liked how this came full circle right into Notre Dame and all the intrigues and pol politics with that. Um, so if what may you said, Maritime got famous. Um, what was it that made his program fail? Is it just is it just these these nefarious actors? That, that hijacked it? I no, mean, no. They had uh, Erna Mc... First of all, he, he liked Erna McMullen. He recommend, He had no idea of evil. I guess he, he had no idea of the evil that was going on in America at that time. He knew uh, Louis Worth, the sociologist, was the main opponent of Maritan at the University of Chicago in the 1930s. And I suppose he knew that he that Worth was his opponent, but he had no understanding of the depth of what Worth was involved in. Worth was the architect of social engineering in the United States. Worth was the man who destroyed every single Catholic parish on the south side of Chicago by orchestrating black migration. And the legacy of that is what happened in Chicago a week ago or two weeks ago, those riots. That is the legacy of Louis Worth. And the fact that he destroyed those Catholic parishes and led those people into bondage to sin. Terrible situation. Maritain had no idea. He, he mentions Gunnar Myrdal. He doesn't understand Gunnar Myrdal's connection with Louis Worth, how these people were engaged in a battle against the Catholic Church. He's completely naive. I mean, I mentioned in the book, it, it reminded me of Babar Comes to America. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, he has these reflections on America, and that's something that Ratzinger points out in his hermeneutic of continuity speech, 2007. He says that the, the fathers of Vatican II saw America as the sort of model secular state, and that was one of the things that made them rethink the syllabus of errors and the condemnations of the 19th century. 
I, I see Mary Tan's influence in I this. I do too. I do too. Separate. I do too. Ratzinger is a tragic figure. He is a tragic figure. He will go down in history as a tragic figure because he was a prime victim of the social engineering, the ruthless social engineering that American American Jews imposed on Germany after World War II. I cover this in the Heisenberg chapter. He was there and what were they doing? What were you thinking? The whole battle over obscenity was going on in Germany at this time, a crucial battle which has had devastating consequences to this day. And I think to be perfectly honest with you, they were all embarrassed by the concept of schmutz und schund. You know, filth and smut is how we would translate that. Well, you cringe when you hear words like that. That doesn't sound cool. We'd much rather talk about Dr. Kinsey and the Kinsey report, because that sounds cool and scientific. Well, I think that Ratzinger still has to figure out, he still doesn't know what happened to him. He still doesn't know. You can tell that speech, I get, you, you cited the classic speech of cluelessness. He said there was a council of the media. Yes, your holiness, there was. Do you know which media? How about Time Magazine? Do you know who was involved with Time Magazine? No, you don't know anything. I'm sorry. With all due, I, I, I've met with him a number of times. I, you know, I personally like the guy, but he's clueless. And, and as a result, the whole German nation is clueless. The whole church is clueless about the real parameters of cultural warfare in our day. Yeah, and that's that's been the legacy of your work has been exposing the situation and the nefarious actors going on. And what you made just made reference to was John Courtney Murray, the American Proposition, the book you published. With that's the, right, uh, Dave, Dave Wemhoff's book on John Courtney Murray, Time, Life, and the CIA. That's where you got the idea, Your Holiness, that there was some type of benign uh, uh, enlightenment in America. You got that from Time Life, and Time Life was the propaganda ministry for the CIA. And John Courtney Murray was working with C.D. Jackson and the CIA, and their job was to subvert the whole doctrine uh, document called Dignitatis Humanae, which was on church and state. The other thing I cover about Vatican II was the Jewish subversion. Uh, B'nai B'rith and the American Jewish Committee using Malachi Martin as their double agent to get uh, Nostra Tate to say that the Jews didn't kill Christ. That was their project. Nobody knows about this. As a matter of fact, polite people will never talk about this type of stuff. And so we'll talk about Jews as our elder brothers, and we have this blah, blah, blah about the Catholic-Jewish dialogue. It was a disaster for the church. And the fact is, to this day, they don't know their history, and I suspect they don't want to know this history because it will make them unfit for polite company. So I'm going to wrap up here, Dr. Jones, one last question. Uh, with if, if Logos Rising is your attempt to restart scholasticism and reinvigorate Logos, uh, what do we need to continue this effort going forward? We have to, uh, we, there is no, we, it, it, you're right. This is, this is, will be the fourth Thomism if, if it succeeds. But there's never been a time where you've had universities that are anti-Logos. Their job is anti-Logos. That is precisely the problem we have now with universities. Uh, how can we go forward? I have no idea. 
I have no idea. The problem is so, it, it's so enormous that I have no idea what to say. I mean, what you could, I, for, just to give you one instance here, I started off 40 years ago as an educational reformer who was trying to say that Catholic education needs to get back to its Catholic roots and it has to abandon things like feminism and all this other type of stuff. I have failed for 40 years to do that. Now, history does not stand still. So all of these riots are the product of the bad education that has taken place for those 40 years. So let's get to Seattle. Seattle has a lesbian mayor, Jenny Durkin, who allowed Antifa to take over six square blocks of her city without, and then she called it a block party and the summer of love, a complete disaster. And, and guess what? She's a Notre Dame graduate. She graduated from Notre Dame in 1980. This is precisely go. when I arrived on the scene and I got fired in 1980. So the point I'm trying to make here, the big picture is that God is in charge of human history. And God does not need anything to work with. He doesn't even need the stones that he talked about with Jesus Christ. He can do anything he wants. And I'm seeing now the absolute weakest point in human history is when the recovery begins. And that's now. Excellent, Dr. Zone. I, I love what you do in the book is bring out that God is in control. And that is a moment and a piece of hope that we need to latch on to understand that our fathers bled and died for Logos, for Jesus Christ, and God will triumph and bring good out of evil. So everybody subscribe to Culture Wars. There's a link at the show notes. Also go and buy Logos Rising, any of Dr. Jones's other books, Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. I particularly like Degenerate Moderns a lot. That's a great uh, book as well, looking into all these things. So Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for all your good work for the church. Thank you, Sam. My pleasure. In the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, amen. Mm -hmm.